into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America. No, no, no. Thank you for listening to Pod Damn America. Anders Lee here with co-host Alex Gutak. Thanks for having me on, Anders. Thrilled to be here. And uh, our regular main centralized uh, host. That's what our we're centralized this. host. Our centralized host. He is out. He has been uh, boosted, and uh, I guess it. You know, it. He can't podcast. It's Dr. Fauci has performed a hit on Jake Flores for getting too close to the cl- truth about club comedy. <laughs> That's right. That's what they're doing is that the vaccines, they are tainted. <laughs> if you are a cuck, I saw some uh, shit thing earlier about people being like, when you get the boost, does that like update the software on the microchip from the first one? And Someone was actually asking yes. Clearly. The Bill Gates microchip. Yes, but we are joined by a Minneapolitan, a journalist now writing for Mother Jones, and someone I believe I was in a safe circle with like 10 years ago in Minneapolis, and that is Eamon Whalen. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, guys. I don't know if I should say that cipher. Like a like a rap cipher. Yeah, like a cipher. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think I remember outside of Honey. I was. Let's clarify. Neither of us were participating in it. Oh, I was thinking. (laughs) I thought Scythe meant you know a little. Oh, got it. Okay. I don't know if you can say that on air. Is uh, is weed legal in Minnesota? Good question. No, no, it's ridiculous. It's like there's so many states that have got it before us that it didn't make sense. It's because we have one of the only split legislatures in the nation. Ah, because I know Governor Santa up there, Tim Walls, wants to Governor make it Santa. legal, right? He looks like Santa. Yeah, it's a very, it's a very main, it's the within fun? the Democrats here. It's very mainstream across the state, I would say, but it's, it's the, it hasn't caught on with the Republicans yet. Yeah. Santa as a figure is historically anti-weed because it reduces your motivation. It keeps you from he operates on slave labor. And without yeah. that, if you know you have all the elves relaxed, sitting down, uh singing songs, eating snacks, they're not making Blu-ray discs that are gonna go in a landfill. They're not making novelty hats that are gonna go in a landfill. All these things that can be thrown in a landfill later are then well, they're not made, and the children of the world take notice. I think uh, Sativo, Santa would be okay with, for the elves specifically. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> this shit makes you psycho. <laughs> You're allowed to freak out on Santa's watch. Yeah. But, that uh, would be a great ha- law. Only Sativo is legal. <laughs> oh, yeah. Actually, I could definitely see that happening because it's the most industrious sort of. Is that something, a law that Jacob Fry would support? Like, you know, <laughs> oh, he's, he's definitely pro legal, is it? He's just. Oh, really? Yeah, he's, he, yeah, he's pro. He, he's been for a while, like, even when he was in city council, I'm pretty sure. Okay. I would and love to is, take, like, blue collar police force people this, and be like, hey, guys, so you have to learn a lot about weed now. <laughs> you have to get microscopes. <laughs> 
Well, the uh, article you've written is a, is entitled "When Communists Ran the Co-ops," and if you're from the Twin Cities, the term "co-op" uh, will will resonate. Gross as a grocery store. That's you know, I moved to St. Paul when I was 12 years old, and we lived by Mississippi Market. And there are a bunch of these places that are green. They say natural foods on the awning, and they sell health foods, and they're a, a co-op. Like, uh. I feel like a lot of people in the Twin Cities who grow up around co-ops don't necessarily understand. Like it took me until I was older to really process what this actually means, what it means to be a cooperative um, business. But uh, what was your – you grew up in Minneapolis. What was your conception of co-ops as a kid and, and how did you yeah. learn about this? That's such a funny thing that you say because I had the exact same experience because I, I went to San Francisco for college. and. I was the first time I was living on my own and I was like, okay, I'm going to find the co-ops here, San Francisco. It's got to have co-op, you know, yeah. every big liberal city has a network of, of co-ops. And, uh, there was, there was, there's one, there's like rainbow in the mission and there's not many others. Um, I don't think there's any others, you know, people can, can correct me if I'm wrong, but, uh, and then my mom, I like asked my mom, I'm like, what the hell? And she was like, yeah, Minnesota, you know, Minnesota is kind of like the the home for that. That's sort of like the, where it started in the heart of it. And so she's, she has been a wedge member, which is one of the oldest ones, which is right in the wedge neighborhood and Franklin and 22nd or, or I'm sorry, Franklin and Lindale or mm. 22nd and Lindale. And um, yeah, so I grew up going to the wedge still go to the wedge went there the other night um but now they've yeah they've grown into or you know there's what five just within minneapolis a bunch in st paul and now they're spreading all in the burbs but yeah I had the exact same experience um and then this summer uh sort of radical organic farmer friend of mine was like hey man have you ever heard of the co-op war and i was just like what are you what and he's like yeah i was like Maoists and hippies, and they're like fighting about the co-ops. And I was like, "What the fuck?" Are you doing? <laughs> I have to find. I have to find out everything about this. So, yeah, yeah, it's funny. I had a. I was saying before the show. I, I spent a lot of time as a teenager on Wikipedia. Uh, I was a nerd, but not a smart nerd. I was. <laughs> it's a bad. It's a tough combination to be a nerd who's also stupid because I couldn't. I wasn't able to find the four chans and the reddits and places to actually talk to people. I only made it as far as Wikipedia, <laughs> and that's where I sp spent my time getting getting useless information. And one of those things, I just looked up the letter O. I was just curious about the letter O, and and one of its the, the line said. Uh, Co-op organization in the Twin Cities that, or I think they call it a cult. I was like, what, what other stuff is under the letter O? <laughs> uh, o Magazine, which is Oprah's publication, of course. Which actually That's also be a big one. Yeah, I that would be interesting if that was taken over by uh, by the <laughs> writers and editors, by the workers. Um, but they called it a cult, and there are some cult cultish aspects here. Uh, but before we totally dive into that, how did this sort of system begin? We're talking like late 60s, right? Yes, yes. So from my 
fairly limited research. I, I haven't gotten this book by Craig Cox, which is called uh, Storefront Revolution, Co-ops and the Counterculture, which is sort of like the, you know, the, the, the book, the guy who sort of documented this movement. But um, a woman, so it was inspired by people who had gone to San Francisco and were inspired by Haight-Ashbury and the diggers and the sort of, uh, you know, society in miniature free of exploitation and they'd have free bulk stores and, you know, cooperatively owned everything. And we're going to have this alternative society, you know, away from, away from the dominant society where we can practice this. And then when, and that was sort you know, sort of as the sixties were unraveling maybe, and people were starting to have the back to the land movement and there was people starting to move into communes. And so a woman named Susie Schroyer and her boyfriend, or maybe I think husband guy named Keith Ruona started a farm commune in Georgeville, Minnesota called winding road farm. And it was there that they started growing vegetables that would then be supplying what would become North country co-op on Riverside Avenue in the West bank of Minneapolis. And then within, and that was in 1971. And then within like four years, they had like 24 co-ops in Minneapolis. And these were um, grocery stores, but there was also um, there was cooperatively owned housing and um, you know, people making clothing and uh, childcare um, it was like, it was, but the, it was centered around the grocery stores for sure. Yeah. And to just give an idea about um, the West Bank, that area of Minneapolis, I guess from the West Bank, Cedar Riverside, kind of out to Seward a bit. Um, this is one, to this day, I, one of the most like far left places in the United States. This They recently uh, uh, had a Green Party Councilman who was uh, unreelected, defeated uh, by someone, uh, I guess, running to his left. Is that fair to say? Um, who's an yeah, independent? No, no. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And so this goes back. How, how long has it been that way? Is it uh, go back to even further than the 60s? Yeah. Or? Yeah. So that's sort of like, I mean, I, th- I think exactly where North Country Co-op was. I'm not sure if it would be where Ward 2 is now or, you know, where War II is, but those, they border each other. I believe so. The Cedar Riverside and West Bank was the sort of, you know, Haight-Ashbury section of Minneapolis in the late 70s, or, you know, late 60s, early 70s. Um, A lot of music venues there. Um, But um, basically by the, you know, mid-90s to now, it is now like the, you know, capital of... uh, the Somali population in Minnesota and probably like one of the touch points of um, the Somali diaspora besides like Mogadishu is on Cedar Riverside. And so that's Ward 6. And so like Jamal Osman, who is like that tends to put up a Somali council member. So that might be technically where it is, but yeah, absolutely. That's Seward like connects to it. They they border each other. So yeah, yeah, but technically speaking, but yeah, so that is like, yeah, and there's like the Seward Co, uh, the Seward Cafe, which is a employee-owned mm-hmm. cafe. There's a lot of old kind of Hard relics times of the counterculture. Hard Times Cafe, um, yeah, stuff like that. Which Hard Times Cafe is like, yeah, it's from another era. Going there, yeah, 
Yeah, it feels like I just got, you know, done at the battle in Seattle getting tear gassed or something. Yeah, no, uh, exactly, exactly, exactly. I, I had a friend who recently moved here and he was just like, yeah, I feel like that's like, that place is like 1999. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because there was a uh, informant who, for the RNC in 2008, who recorded conversations on behalf of the FBI uh, in Hard Times Cafe to snitch wow. on uh, activists but not to go on too much of a digression but my uh my uncle's uh house got raided during the 08 rnc oh that was his house yeah i remember seeing with the amy goodman was there and the yeah he was on the welcoming committee they found her uh, they had they had looked into um him getting a bunch of shipments like of of stuff which they thought were i don't know weapons or something munitions and uh it was pamphlets about veganism (laughs) <laughs> a more dangerous weapon than anything you'll find at a gun store um, um but yes, can I we just... should we should shout out uh robin robin wansley warlaba who did defeat cam gordon and is an independent black democratic socialist on the city council uh-oh and... robin you're getting the pod damn america this is a shout out of the week <laughs> And, yeah. and then we'll have, we'll put in the shout she out. She has of the a week. podcast. Or her her really? campaign had a podcast. Yeah. Oh, what was it called? Robin's Nest. That's oh, the great fuck, name. That's a good one. <laughs> if my name was Robin, that would be the first thing I thought of. Not like what were you now. Say? Alex, what oh, you I had a question. Okay, so what makes this cafe feel like you're in the 90s is it you go in there and it is it it's a co-op so like the other people there are like customers and they also work there you what throws you you back paint a picture you will go up to the counter people this must happen a hundred times a day there someone goes up to the counter starts to order and the person uh the cashier says "Eh, eh, 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 eh." write it down and so you have to go over to a table write down your order uh, hand it to the person, and then you go to pay, you take out your wallet, reach for the credit card. Uh, again, cash only. <laughs> uh, so the main thing is place. they kind of wave their finger at you. Yeah, <laughs> and they get to be... It's, <laughs> I wanted to work there. I mean, the hours seem really rough because they're open to like three, but... Uh, yeah. Savage. You gotta I, love coffee. As someone who worked in the service industry, I was very jealous of the employees there, the, the, the co-owners, the owner employees. Yeah, you, could, you don't have to be nice to people. Um, no, it's kind of part of the charm. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, so the, the co-op system starts to get going, and and yeah, as you said, they were like, "Oh, we want to be like San Francisco." Before you know it, San Francisco wants to be like Minneapolis, St. Paul, because uh, business is booming. Well, you know, in relatively speaking, there's a lot of these these grocery stores, um, and they are operating in a lot of sort of hippie havens, but also in low-income neighborhoods. And there's a little bit of tension and perhaps some awkwardness that still exists there. And that is part of the impetus, right, to, to change things and, and start out on a new footing. Um, how does that proceed? Yeah, so... A lot of a lot of what I'm going off is based on this. We should say this documentary called "The Co-op Wars" that kind of my article centered around. But I did some other research about it. But the way that they tell it, and the way I mean, it, it's it's pretty plausible, I guess, or, or intuitive, is that 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 
movement that was coming together was largely like a lot of the new left and counterculture, largely white middle class. And I think a lot of the more hardcore uh, or just more um, ideologically stringent or just like uh, action oriented um, Marxists were saying, you know, we're just, we're just drifting into our little niche of escapism here. And we're like, we're drifting away from the uh, work, working class and we're irrelevant to the working class who are supposed to be the vanguard of our movement. And so we need to make this an explicitly ideological Marxist project. And the, the sort of like, you know, hinge point of the movie and what it centers around is the entry point of this guy named, which makes, which gives the movie a lot of its like uh, intrigue is this guy named Theoph- Theophilus Smith aka smitty but he has like several aliases yeah and this and is there's a guy no pictures who, of him there's so like, the, the the filmmakers told me in the interview they just recently found a, a picture oh. of him at a snick rally in the south wow so this is a black guy who had been an organizer in the student nonviolent coordinating coordinating committee in the south and then had gone up to the uh uh revolutionary uh, league of black workers uh, in Detroit, which were like Marxist Leninist uh, groups that were trying to sort of agitate against the UAW um, at the time. And so he had this, like, you know, like, I agitate when you say against uh, to be uh, revolutionary black workers were trying to go against the what they saw as like the white chauvinism in the UAW and the union movement at the time. Okay. That was like a, a movement in Detroit. Uh, it's called Dodge the Detroit. God, I'm forgetting what the what the or drum. I'm forgetting what the acronym is, but it became the League of Revolutionary Black Workers. But that's all to say is that this guy had a lot of leftist bona fides and came to the way they tell it is that he he found his way to Winding Road Farm and saw that what they were doing and wanted to build his cadre out of the co-op movement and wanted to turn the co-ops into a weapon against the uh, quote monopolistic structure of the food system. And um, he was, you know, they were, it was like at the time where a lot of people in the West were embracing like Marxist Leninism and Maoism because those sort of third world revolutionary movements were seeing wins and success all around the world. Um, and so that initiated uh fracture so he gets the guy keith riona the aforementioned guy who's the uh the founder with his wife Susie schroyer he gets keith on his side and they start the co-op organization the co what what um anders called the the o earlier which they would later become and they start to uh try to heighten the contradictions within the uh co-op organization and um start to try to take control of it and uh, how many of their critiques are valid? Because, and this is a, one thing I keep coming back to when I think about this, is they were saying these co-ops as they exist, they're selling health food. And that's good for you, sure. But poor people don't eat healthy food. They like the Lay's potato chips. They like the Pepsi. They like the canned foods. Um, how valid do you think that is? Do you think that is... Uh, Fair because you know, now it is mostly healthy at you know the co ops, they sell a ton of broccoli, vegetables, and stuff, but they also sell like 
healthy junk food too. Yeah. Uh, it's all just expensive. Um, do you think there is something too? Like we gotta like sell people cheap goods that they know from marketing that are like popular just to to have a grounding in the in the community or um is there a balance to be struck there i think there's a balance to be struck and it's i that this is one of the parts of it that fascinated me so much because and and is so interesting about the movie is because there are sort of parts of each side that you can sort of empathize with um and and to say like at the time there was no uh there, w- there was no organic, natural, processed foods, for lack of a better term, packaged foods business. You know, uh, business. This was the start of creating the movement that would then these people, a lot of these people, would become entrepreneurs and and do that. You know, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I think so. So that's Anders is alluding to that the one of the things, one of the cruxes of the of the ideological fracture within the co op movement that the CEO sort of tried to initiate was they, and this it's always, it's most of the lore because it's so, it's such an interesting juxtaposition is like Twinkies or tofu. Like Mm. Barbara Ehrenreich writes about this several times or she'll reference it and call it the Twinkie Wars. It's actually like (laughs) she referenced, this is very like key to her PMC theory, which I know Mm. is a contested term, but um, it's very interesting because she's talking about, yeah, I can kind of go on her thing where she's talking about this, this sort of, um, it's not so much to say that like, yeah, of course Twinkies are bad for you, but it's that, it's that preachiness and sanctimoniousness that comes Mm -hmm. with the sort of, we know what's best for you sort of thing. And I think what the CEO is trying, was trying to do was meet people where they're at to build the, you know, working class power to, to, to take over. And then we can, you know, figure out the food later. It's like, I think they said in some of their papers, like working class, poor people, oppressed people have bigger problems than, uh, sugar and white flour, you know, whatever. But like, that's also, it's, it's sort of specious because we know, you know, how much, uh, poor nutrition and food access hurts, you know, poor people, but, Right. There's also like there the, the the thing that I always think about in these debates is that uh there's there was a study out of Stanford a couple of years ago that um I always think about that showed that it isn't actually it's not so much about access and education about sort of like you know uh getting poor people to have healthy food or bringing, you know, accessibility and education. It's more so that poorer people have less money to spend on luxuries mm-hmm. and leisure time. And so you can get a lot more out of like a two liter of soda and a big bag of Lay's, you know, and you can right. feel like you're a good parent and it can, and it's like, and it tastes good. And it's like, and if I think we, and that just shows that you need to just, we need to just improve, you know, improve the bottom line for everybody basically. Yeah. Um, and so that that's where I kind of get to it. But yeah, I, it's on one hand, it is good that these co-ops existed and they had kept, you know, they kept alive a network of organic farmers, but they let them like, they kept the thing that was just easiest to be co-opted. They sort of like, no pun intended. 
Oh God damn. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, as they, uh, uh, as, as it grew, you know, after this, after this fracture happened. So, so that's, that's the main thing is that like a lot of it is, is about this, the, the food issue, but a big thing that was revealed in the movie and that if you look into it as well, they were also really, and this is also harkens to debates of today is that they were very critical of the sort of leaderless, like horizontal decision-making structure. Right. Yeah. And they wanted to instill something closer to like democratic centralism, basically. Um, and to have it be more hierarchical and the producer, Eric Essie, the executive producer of the movie who's sort of the, the guy who's the, creator of it um who's probably done the most research on it um he was saying that because of that because of how serious they were about actually systematizing things they they actually made them get their act together and they that's why they were able to actually catch on with a lot of the rank and file and people who worked in the stores so that the the we should say that the ceo forms and then they are ascendant for a bit like they mm -hmm. are like actually taking control and they form an alliance with a guy named Mo Burton, which is sort of what you were talking about that they open, uh, the Bryant central co-op in South Minneapolis. This is actually in the neighborhood where George Floyd was killed in South Minneapolis, the historically black area of South Minneapolis. And he, Mo Burton is a former black Panther and he makes an alliance with the CEO. The CEO help, helps him open this co-op. And so he's sort of their, like, you know, their main authentic link, to the working class, you could say, or to, you know, uh, oppressed people in Minneapolis. Right. So they are trying to build solidarity with the broader community and establish a footing in the rank and file of this co-op movement, but their means are not entirely uh, democratic. Um, they are accused eventually of, of going too far. Uh, what are some of those tactics that they end up using and sort of imposing on the so they uh they basically try to make their big move at the meeting at the people's warehouse so there's a warehouse in minneapolis that's like the distribution center for all of these other co-ops that i mentioned that like all the food goes there and then it's distributed out and so they're like you know if we can take control of that we can we can take control of the whole thing the whole network and they go to this meeting and they try to take it over in the meeting. And then after the meeting, they roll up with like steel pipes. And this is where, you know, this is where it's just like, when you're hearing about the story, you're like, holy shit. Yeah. And the fun, like one of the most memorable parts of the movie for me is this is Mo Burton's nephew, this guy named Gary Cunningham, who was now um, like a very buttoned up nonprofit executive who's also the husband of the former Minneapolis mayor, Betsy Hodges. Right. Him telling with a steel pipe about to like crack some hippie skull, telling them that they need to have some third world leadership. <laughs> and I was just like, that's just incredible that yeah. this, that, that, like, I just, it was just amazing. Um, and so they take control, you know, they seize control of it, but there's like a backlash. And then there's just like a series of escalating confrontations that involves car bombs, car fist bombs. fights. Yeah. I missed the car bomb part. Wow. When so they so the CEO, like the CEO's escalating tactics ends up alienating Mo Burton. And then Mo Burton says, Okay, I'm just taking this 
Brian Central Co-op is mine. You know, like, fuck, you know, you guys are like, I can't take you guys seriously anymore. And then they car bomb Mo Burton's car for that. And then they try to take over the Bryant Central Co-op. And then like the way the documentary puts it, he basically, him and some of his guys whooped their ass. Wow. I missed the car bomb part. That was in the yeah. documentary? Yeah. Oh, yeah. shit. Oh. Um, yeah. So after that, it seems like there, and there's also a city council member. Yeah. At Ed the Fleen, time. Who I, yeah. I didn't even know that this guy was a city council member. I know him as the editor of the South, uh, the publisher and editor of the Southside Pride, which is like a, a South Minneapolis community newspaper. And he's just kind of a crank, like, no, like for lack of a better term, I just know him as sort of a crank columnist. <laughs> who's like kind of entertaining to read, but I'm like half, you know, you're sort of like, yeah. What, no, okay. What I, are some I, of the things that he writes about now? I can't remember. It's just like city issues. Like yeah. it's just like his version of a hot take about like the city council or anything from you know upzoning to defund the police to wherever. What just whatever. But so this guy Ed Feline is a city councilman who says in the movie that he was a Marxist city council member. Mm-hmm. Um and or like he was trying to be an ally to the struggle of marxism within the city council maybe is how he puts it and he is for the ceo and so he's like an ally for them so he can kind of like pull strings for them and then they end up alienating him as well so they sort of they 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 uh maybe heightened the contradictions too fast and I, it just seems very of that time that there was, I think there was a lot of, it was a time of a lot of small sex that sort of became cults. Yeah. And it's, and a little, might, yeah. Well, it's, it's a bit hard to tell for the document who the ringleader is, but one of the only people in it who's still uh, unapologetic about the actions of the CO, even the more uh, contradiction heightening ones is this woman, uh, Lin, I think Lynette something, I'm forgetting her name. But mm-hmm. uh, just judging sort of superficially, this seems mm-hmm. like sort of a woman who is from the upper middle class and, you know, mm-hmm. presents her, you know, like the way she talks and things. It sounds like this is sort of a, a buttoned up person who's still talking about like, well, they were trying to do things the, the good old fashioned American democratic way. And that's not how change happens. Um, and yeah, it's all these polite old Minnesotan people talking about, you know, Marxist. I just, <laughs> yeah. It's so wild. I mean, the, 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 it's such a, I mean, it's just like a funny documentary because it's all these boomers, like just being like, like at the end, like, so when the CEO starts to like fade away and the guy Keith is like, so I, I took my Mao and I, I dropped <laughs> in my, all my literature and I dropped yeah. it off at his house. And there's like these like somber guitars and it's just, it's so funny. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's what I sort of think is that they bought like really, like the, so the movie and this is kind of one of the critiques i had it sort of presents the ceo as having confused racial politics and being able to be like put under the spell almost of this guy uh theo smith because he's this like radical charismatic radical black guy mm-hmm. but i think both both sides had confused racial politics and confused class politics and didn't really know like we're overcompensating and not really know knowing how to build a base or alienating their base or getting ahead of it, you know, like they were, they were, 
doing too much like speaking for the working class instead of speaking to sort of thing. Yeah. And that's that really, I, I really feel like this does, this really re- did resonate with me as a, you know, a white leftist in 2021, because this is something that happens every day uh, is, you know, someone will sort of appoint themselves the voice of the working class and you guys don't get it. Uh, you're not, you, if you're from my background, you'd understand that this such and such a tactic isn't working. And then you have someone from the same exact with the same exact sort of credentials, so to speak, saying, no, if if you were actually authentically this thing, then you would know that it is working. And like, it's just this reductionist uh, sort of back and forth. But that it was, that's a good point that there were on, on both sides in the documentary kind of does. Um, it's funny when, when each uh, person is speaking on the lower thirds, they have a little symbol, like yeah, a hammer and sickle if they were on the, the CO and then like a, what is it? A green piece, a uh, peace sign. Yeah. yeah. If they were the uh, hippies, so, so called. Um, but so do you th- think that the class composition, the racial composition was about even on, on either sort of end of the split? I think so. Yeah. I mean, I, I think so, but I, I think that at, at, at least the CO was, they had a genuine like desire and sort of like, um, uh, objective to, to engage that. But it just seemed like a lot of the, um, hippies and then the way, it, the way it ended up happening is was just drifted farther and farther away from these co-ops having any kind of like political identity, let alone having that be the cent- center of it. Um, right. There's one thing I should like, this is an interesting quote I found from one of the, the newspapers. This is also an interesting thing. It was such a time for like independent publishing because they each side had newspapers that would, they would just like flame each other in and write these like really serious position papers, like um, going back and forth. And they said, uh, so this is from the co-op newspaper, The Scoop. So this is about a meeting in 1975 and they said, independent Marxists criticized the CEO for divisive tactics, for serious tactical mistakes, misusing and obviously misunderstanding Marxism. A couple Marxists explained, sometimes extremely emotionally, how they've tried very hard to get into the CEO's movement but could not due to their different tactics and style. Personal slanders, disruptions, and shattering of the community were pointed out. So that kind of gets in, and that, that's something that the filmmaker told me is that, like, there were some critics of it that were also communists or radicals that were just like these these people are just a little like out they're just too out there and they're a little bit you know which which they became and we should say that the co became the o which did become something that resembled something more like a call and there's actually a woman named alexandra stein who is a member who is now a scholar of of cults who like wrote a memoir yeah so how did they, what did they go off to do? What, did they stay in Minnesota? So a lot of them went like a lot of uh, new left, like socialists and communists. They went to go join the industrial proletariat in like other cities. Mm-hmm. But then others, um, I think the, the, whoever stayed, it just became an increasingly more um, insular group. I'm not sure. I think, I think they may have stayed in Minnesota, but they went underground. 
And the filmmakers told me that the last someone had heard of the guy Smitty, Theo Smith, was that one of the other SEAL members that they had talked to was uh, saw him working uh, in northern Minnesota on like as like part of like a road crew. Wow. As like yeah, as like a public worker. Um, and so yeah, it's interesting because there actually there are some CEO members that are like you know obviously we're down to talk for the movie. And one of the guys, Dean Zimmerman, actually became mm-hmm. a Green Party city councilman. And then I realized, and then I didn't know he did time. He he, yeah. he took a bribe and then went to jail. Just <laughs> yeah, crazy. I was looking at on Wikipedia. Yeah, I saw. <laughs> he uh, that's it's funny how like people like the Green Party in the U.S. is you know mostly non-existent as far as actual power and office holders, but Minneapolis is one of the few cities where they actually did have, um, I guess now it's kind of gone or waning, but they did have a uh, grasp on some political power there mm-hmm. with uh, city council people and Annie Young, who was mm-hmm. um, on sort of the hippie side and went on. Mm-hmm. I remember her being the uh, parks counselor, which if you're a Green Party person running for any office you should choose uh parks commissioner because that's the easiest one to get elected to i think if you're if you're a green um but is that kind of where the political uh element of the co-op movement went is is into the green party especially in like the 90s early 2000s that's a good question Uh, that that i don't know um yeah I, i i'm not sure about that like where where that exactly went um yeah yeah i don't know well it's it's interesting too you know especially coming back to uh how it relates to today because it's hard to imagine this actually doing uh what they thought it would do which is roll over capitalism uh just from these grocery stores but is there anything they could have done differently that would have perhaps been, I mean, obviously the co-ops are still around, but I don't know that they're really threatening the system in the way that, that they set out to. Um, but as no, they say at the end of the movie, it's, it's yeah. possible that that could be the case that we could see a revival in cooperative businesses. And, and I, I know a lot of millennials who certainly would love to see that and, and talk about cooperative economics. Um, how how do you think yeah. that would happen and how could have they have gone about things differently? Yeah. Um, I don't know about how gone thing like, so the, 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 how the story goes sort of is like they, as it was told to me is that this conflict was so traumatic that it, it hastened a, a turn away from like an apolitical turn in co-ops. And so as they grew, and then they they became less having that in their identity, and um, you could even say in, in their brand identity. And as like then as we get into the eighties and nineties, and there starts to be a mainstreaming of health food, and then you start to grow into like and so if if you turn that health food, if you if you take away any sort of political valence to it, whether it's like farmers rights like even you know holding corporations accountable accountable like if there isn't some kind of you know uh fair trade some kind of late you know but like more explicit than that if you keep it solely to consumer politics like you're just hastening the ability for whole foods to come in and, and just like uh 
I'm going to refrain from saying that word, but uh, swoop in and, and take all of your business because there's nothing that separates you from the rest of the market, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so as the nineties, as, as health food becomes more mainstreamed, um, co-op start, I mean, they're like, they, they have a niche audience who knows that it's good that they go to a co-op, but then like everyone else who just wants, like knows that the food is good would go to whole foods and whole foods can take over and they're run by a ruthless, you know, union busting libertarian, um, who, occasionally debates uh richard wolf and Bhaskar sankara about capitalism <laughs> right um, and then bought by jeff bezos so like and so now so so how the how the the filmmakers put it to me who have two guys who have worked in the, like co-ops and in, in the co-op sort of area ecosystem is that now that and and i should say i also have a friend who works for regional co-op grocers who who like actually sees a lot of the numbers and he told me that there's uh, there's more sales of natural food products in in major retail stores now than in co-ops. Mm. So what like and so if if they don't like people can go elsewhere. Like you can get organic stuff at Target, you know. Right. If people can go elsewhere now, what does a co-op offer? And so a lot of co-ops are now with you know uh cooperative economics and alternatives to at least like corporate capitalism are becoming more popular you know etc cetera, etc cetera. co-ops are maybe starting to embrace that more but i'm a little bit skeptical of that we'll see i i, I one thing that i didn't put in my article just for space but was they chose to close their film with the story of this co-op that opens pretty close in that area of of south minneapolis in a majority black neighborhood and they it's the seward co-op and they don't sign a community benefits agreement but then they sort of come to an agreement and they try to tie it in a bow but another way to look at the seward was that in 2018 the seward uh co-op employees unionized Mm. and if you look at a lot of the testimonies of the workers it was like a very it wasn't a very good place to work and the seward co-op board was very hesitant um and employed a lot of union busting tactics. And so wow. that's not what you would want from a uh, co-op. You know, you think that would be antithetical to co-ops that at the very least, if you can't be pro-labor in your own uh, place. So um, I'm not sure. I mean, I know there's a lot of young radical people working in the co-ops in, in Minneapolis today, but I, I don't know what the what the potential of them is. Um, I hope, you know, this, this film and people learning about this can be some sort of a intervention. Right. It it seems in a way, it's funny you mentioned target cause there, I won't name the co-op, but my mom said she saw one of the uh, owners or managers from the co-op shopping at target to buy shit that he was going to sell in, in a co-op. Um, but <laughs> this is a long time ago. Yeah. You know, I'm hearing uh, that. You know what I'm doing, Anders? No, no, that? no. Wag on your finger. finger. Yeah. Um, but it is so when people hear co-op, I guess, especially with, you know, the Richard Wolves and that stuff, we're thinking employee owned and these aren't necessarily. No, like so that. that's, like, another, that's another thing that that turn, which is also they got professionalized, is that a lot of the co-ops back in the day were worker like you volunteered for your share as the owner, worker owner it changed into a consumer owner, customer owner model. Right. So I should say that was a major difference 
and how things happened. Like, I think now there's still like places like the Park Slope Co-op, which is like, you know, legendary for their having to volunteer six hours a week or, you know, you literally can't buy a Broad City episode, you know, like, yeah, I tried to Um, go in in there once. I was just like, I just need a a seltzer. Can I buy that? And they're like, are you a member? No, you cannot buy this one thing, even though you have a dollar in front of me. (laughs) You cannot buy anything unless you're an actual member who does a shift there. It's crazy. Yeah, they so shouldn't some, sell to you, but like at the cost of treating you like a, do- a dirty dog. <laughs> like you pay sure. a, a dignity fee. Right. You should be. You should have to write down the seltzer that you're getting <laughs> and uh, hand them the slip of paper. You have to write on the paper, I couldn't find this in the trash where <laughs> I get most of my food. So I would like your seltzer for $5. All right. And I say, I mean, I should say, I say all these critiques of co-op as someone who <laughs> goes to these co-ops you know weekly for my entire life so um i'm talking about myself as much as anyone yeah likewise i mean my or my uh my parents go to mississippi market all the time and they say their little number at the register and it goes into some account thing and you get charged an extra 30 cents or whatever it is every time you buy something and then you get like a dividend at the end of the year for i don't know what 20 bucks something like that it's not it's not a ton of money um i guess it's slightly better than straight up um whole foods but okay. yeah it's it's definitely not the the vision that they had had set out but uh based on you know what's happening with Young people now and the way people are viewing capitalism and, you know, the, the base of uh, employees and customers in these places, maybe maybe we're due for uh, a uh, renovation in the, the cooperative system yeah. in the Twin Cities. One, one thing that the filmmaker Eric Essie told me, and this is from like marketing data when he was an employee, he said that the, it's actually more so, and this is going to sound very familiar, more so than razor class it's level of education correspondence right. to whether you shop at a co-op so um and that goes to the you know pmc uh theory right that, uh barbara ehrenreich was sort of this was the time that she was writing about of this sort of split and people not really knowing how to relate together and so um yeah it's uh that's that's what's fascinating about it i'm like this is such a historical snapshot with so much uh, lessons yeah, absolutely. Because that's a, that's a key point. There is like a lot of times, you know, in socialists today, we'll, they'll go back to this refrain, which is is true that you know, in a, under a Marxist definition, you're working class if you don't own capital. So in theory, we should be able to just boom band together. We're all in the same class, and that's what we're striving to do. But it doesn't happen like clockwork. Uh, yeah. If you're from a different background as someone else, you may have to speak in a different way. Um, so yeah, a lot of great lessons from this movie. It's on uh, YouTube, narrated by Peter Coyote. Hey, hey who was an OG digger? Right. I didn't know who. It's kind of a nice uh, full circle because he inspired the movement. It, we um, should maybe say who the diggers are too. I just well, the diggers it. were uh, they were a street theater troupe, but they were the ones who were sort of pulling the strings a lot behind a lot of uh, Haight Ashbury and making a lot of it possible. Um, and then, uh, I'm probably close to wrapping up, but one thing that people have brought up to me in conversations about seeing it are, 
uh, questioning whether Smitty was some kind of uh, agent or asset. Uh, or something, what do you think? Which I hadn't considered at all, but is interesting. If you had to guess, what would you say on that question? Probably not. Right. That is one of those things where obviously around that time, very common for um, subversion of uh, the left by on the part of the government. But like that's also was kind of the point was to get us being the left to suspect everybody else of being a uh, yeah an op. I mean, um, I mean it very. I'm very like it's very plausible that all of that just could have happened on its own. <laughs> you know, <Yeah. laughs> didn't need to have. <laughs> But um, some people did bring it up to me, and I thought it was an interesting. I'm also I'm reading that book Chaos right now, so it's all in it's all in my mind. I mean, that's how you can never solve these things, right? Is because it's also plausible that it was a carefully orchestrated op, or almost (laughs) equally so. Right. Well, speaking of which, before we let you go, I do want to ask one question on this topic. Uh, Since you're a Minnesota political journalist, who do you think killed Paul Wellstone? I'm going to uh, defer to Immortal Technique on that. Ah, okay. This is how Anders ends every podcast. Well, <laughs> it's what I I wanted to do uh, an episode about that. Have you ever looked? You know that that you that like former UMD professor. Yes, who, and I was like, gonna buy that book, and then it turns out he's a Holocaust denier. Yeah, I know. You look into him, you're like, this yeah. is interesting, and then he's right. a Holocaust denier and Sandy Hook truther, and you're like, okay, yeah. the rabbit hole goes too deep. <laughs> But there's something weird about that plane crash. Anyway, we'll we'll have you back for your uh, your long uh, tome that you write about the Wellstone assassination. <laughs> uh, yeah. But what else are you working on? Where can people find you? Um, so yeah, as you alluded to at the beginning, I, I am just in the second week of a new. Uh, I'm an editorial fellow at Mother Jones Magazine, so nice. I have a I have a job after not thinking I would ever get a job in media. So it's a, uh, it's pretty amazing. There you go. So I'm You're just, right. uh, yeah. Working the nine to five for now, but, uh, find me on, on Twitter. Uh, first and last name is my app. We'll have that in the episode description and, and- uh, racket racket MN.com. If you want to read the article, um, it's an interview with the filmmakers and then, you know, a bit of what I just said here. Yeah, we will uh, link to that along with the the movie. You should check it out. And, oh, I did want to ask, too. It ends on a great song that I tried looking up and couldn't find. Do you know what the uh, closing credit song is? I remember so dearly the times gone by. It's a dream that I just can't let go.